students and colleagues. Um, and hopefully we will have an interesting discussion about the topic that I'm going to address. Uh, I'm using PowerPoint slides, which for some of you might not be what you're used to. I note <laughs> among my colleagues in Lund that more and more of the teachers are, are um, stopping using PowerPoint technique and starting to write instead on whiteboards and whatnot. Um, I always thought PowerPoint was a good way of uh, bringing your message across, as long as you remember not to fill your slides with too much text and, and be careful in a general way. So that's what I'm trying to do. Please let me know if I'm not succeed, successful in that respect. Um, as Hannes said, some of my recent research has been dealing with the use Kogan's concept. I'm not trying to take side in the use Kogan's discourse. I'm, I'm more trying to understand what I see, what I hear, and what I read. If you know a few things about the use Kogan's concept, you know that people are claiming lots of different things, and if you are trying to uh, bring everything together, it's simply impossible to find a coherent pattern. And my idea is that this is because people start with very different uh, underlying assumptions when they say things about use Kogan's. And this is uh, partly the approach that I use today as well. Um, the use Kogan's concept is problematic. I think we can agree on this. And it is problematic because of its functions. And now remember that I talk about the concept, the concept of use Kogan's. A concept in international law and in law in general is something that serves a certain function. It serves as a connective in legal reasoning, in inferences from identifying criteria to legal consequences. And of course, identifying criteria in the case of Jus Kogans are the properties that lawyers use, or international law uses, to identify a norm as Jus Kogans. Legal consequences are what ensues from having classified enormous use tokens. <clears throat> so between the identifying criteria on the one hand, the legal consequences the, on the other, we have use Kogans, the use Kogans concept in the middle, which typically helps communicating about use Kogans issues. Uh, but it also helps uh, pinpointing the problem that we are confronting in the use Kogan's debate. What makes the concept problematic is the huge divide that exists between different lawyers' understanding of both of the two categories of elements, both identifying criteria and legal consequences. So that's my starting point. And the question I'm asking myself is how can we explain this divide? Why is it that people are claiming so many different things? Why is it that some lawyers, those at the two ends, or those at the, the ends of, of the scales, so to say, how is it that they are so far apart? Uh, if we begin with identifying criteria, I think the answer is not that difficult to see. Uh, there's something to be said here, here about 
the concept of international law as such. And all of a sudden we are now approaching fundamental issues of legal theory. But I think we can all agree that there is an obvious relationship between a lawyer's idea of the source of, use, of the use cognitive status of a norm and her understanding of identifying criteria. So if you maintain, for example, that use Kogan's, the use cognitive status of norms derived from customary international law, customary international lawmaking processes, <coughs> by logical necessity you will have to identify use Kogan's norms through observations of state practice and their opinion use. And this is basically what, what Article 53 of the Vienna Convention tells you to do. Um, they, the convention or the provision uh, refers to use Kogan's norms as norms accepted and recognized as inderogable law by the international community of states. I think this is an, an implicit, implicit reference to the practice of states and their opinion use. Uh, in the alternative, you may insist that the use Kogan status of norms derives from the commitment of lawyers to some overarching ideal. This, this position is quite well represented when it comes to use Kogan's, especially in, in some legal cultures. <clears throat> this ideal might be different depending on what lawyer we are talking about. For some, the ideal is justice. For others, it's legality. Uh, for a third group of people, it is the accommodation of the common basic needs of human beings. But there are many other alternatives as well. I'm, I'm, I'm using these examples just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, if you take this position, you will identify use Kogan's norms based on their efficacy. As you will be contending, a norm is use Kogan's if the legal consequences tied to that status is necessary to realize the presupposed legal ideal. So use Kogan's norm is use Kogan's because it has to be use Kogan's in order to realize justice, legality or whatnot. So much for the legal, uh, so much for the identifying criteria. Uh, with respect to the legal consequences, I think the answer to the huge divide between lawyers is not that easy to see. Um, many people would seem to believe that the legal consequences of use Kogan's are theory neutral. So they approach the legal consequences in a different way than they approach the identifying criteria. So legal consequences are not, according to many people, dependent on any particular understanding of the concept of law. And that is the exact assumption that I will try to refute. Hmm? I think no such theory neutrality can be, can be um, obtained in the case of, of use Kogan's and in the case of the use Kogan's debate. So what I will try to argue is that a lawyer's conception of the legal consequences of use Kogan's is no less dependent on her understanding of the concept of law than her understanding of identifying criteria. So whether you are discussing identifying criteria or the legal consequences, you will be influenced by your conception of what international law is. Uh, my argument will proceed in four steps. So first I will identify the point of divergence in the use Kogan's debate. 
which I believe is the issue of whether use Kogan's norms entail obligations concerned with their own enforcement. Secondly, I will try to identify the reason for this divergence. As I will argue, lawyers are using different criteria for the individuation of norms as the term that I am using in the title of my presentation, the individuation of norms. Third, I will establish a relationship between a lawyer's understanding of the concept of law and the way she individuates use Kogan's norms. So I will try to argue, depending on a lawyer's understanding of the concept of law, she will use different criteria of individuation. And last, I will try to tie things together. I will show how my analysis explains why, for some lawyers, use Kogan's norms entail obligations concerned with their own enforcement, whereas for other lawyers, they do not. <coughs> so, let's begin with the Vienna Convention, or a quick reading of Article 53 of the Vienna Convention. I think Article 53 uh, is a good beginning when you are discussing the legal consequences of Jus Kogans, because they give you an idea of what kind of consequences we are talking about. Although many people would say that the legal consequences of Jus Kogans are not only those laid down in the Vienna Convention, we have to look beyond the Convention. Uh, as Article 53 makes apparent, the legal consequences can be um, divided into three separate categories. So first, the conferral of a use Kogan status on a norm brings with it a series of new obligations. Uh, it's usually said that use Kogan's norms uh, prevail over norms of ordinary international law. This was said by the ICJ in the um, jurisdictional immunities of the state case, and it's been said in the literature. Uh, in the event of a conflict between a use Kogan's norm and a rule of custom international law, states must act upon the use Kogan's rule. This is why I call it an obligation, a use Kogan's obligation. It is a secondary, in my terminology, it's a secondary use Kogan's obligation, because I wish to distinguish this obligation from the primary use Kogan's obligations, which might be, let's say, the prohibition of torture, the prohibition of genocide, or the right of self-determination of peoples. Secondly, the conferral of a use Kogan status on a norm has an effect on the lawmaking powers of international lawmakers, states and international organizations, basically. According to Article 53 of the Vienna Convention, if a norm is used cognizant, this norm can be modified only <coughs> under some certain circumstances or on some certain conditions by the creation of a subsequent norm having the status of use cognizant. So use cognizant norms are modified by a later use cognizant norm. A use cognizant norm cannot be modified by a norm of ordinary international law. <coughs> this article... I believe, translates into a no-confidence rule. If a norm is used Kogans, then states have no power to modify it except by the creation of a new use Kogans norm. So it affirms or confirms the fact that states, although they would normally have an unlimited lawmaking power, this lawmaking power has now been reduced to some extent. Third, 
if the conferral of a use Kogan status on a norm has an effect on the powers of states and international organizations as lawmakers, then it has also a corresponding effect on their legal obligations as legal decision makers. Article 53 provides that if states wish to modify a use Kogan's norm and they conclude a treaty for that purpose, then it follows that the treaty is void. Voidness implies the negation of the state of affairs that would have been created by the treaty if it hadn't conflicted with the use Kogan's norm. And the state of affairs that would have been created is, of course, the creation of a number of legal obligations. And that's why I think it's apt to say that the legal consequence in this case is a no obligation. So all those states would normally be obliged to act as a treaty instructs them to act. They have no longer any such obligation because the treaty conflicts with the use Kogan's. It's interesting to um, make a quick survey of the literature on use Kogan's because it tells you if the literature is correct, it tells you that use Kogan's has consequences. The conferral of use Kogan status of a norm has consequences beyond those provided in the Vienna Convention. Lawyers have claimed the existence of a great number of secondary use Kogan's obligations, no competences and no obligations. <clears throat> and I've tried illustrating some of them on this slide. And once again, I'm trying to categorize. So what I see is that the suggested consequences fall into two different categories. So first, we have a category addressing the performance of primary use Kogan's obligations, similar to what you find in the Vienna Convention Article um, 53 and 64. Secondly, you have another category addressing the enforcement of primary obligations. So the fundamental difference, or the fundamental di divergence between lawyers' different understandings of the legal consequences of use Kogan's uh, seems to be whether this second category should be accepted or not. Some, some, some lawyers are defendant or the, are defending this second category, and other lawyers think that this is absurd, this is very far from any sound understanding of the use Kogan's concept. And that brings us back to the initial question, why is it that some lawyers find it peculiar that the use Kogan status of norms should have a bearing on the enforcement of primary use Kogan's obligations, whereas other lawyers obviously do not? And, to uh, moving somewhat ahead, the answer, I believe, has to do with their different ideas of the way to individuate use Kogan's norms. Now we have to go back to basics again. We have to look at the conditions for the performance of secondary use Kogan's obligations, uh, no competences and no obligations. Because there is something that connects all these obligations, all these legal consequences, if you will, uh, and that is the existence of a conflict. So they are performed on the condition of the existence of a conflict. Conflict between norms, or more specifically, conflict between a use Kogan's norm 
and the norm of ordinary international law. And this is why we have to deal with the basic concept of a norm. So there has to be a norm conflicting with another norm. And the question is, of course, what is a norm? So dealing with the consequences of use Kogan's uh, forces you to engage with one of the more basic issues there are in legal theory. In a way, we can talk about a legal norm as an abstract entity in the lawyer's description of a legal system. This entity may be inscribed on a piece of paper, or we can utter it orally uh, when we speak about the law. But basically and crucially, the norm is analytically separate from its verbal manifestations. And I'm using an example to illustrate this. The example is Article 109, Paragraph 4 of the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. I think this is a, an excellent example, uh, and I will tell you why. Uh, the reason is that, of course, this provision provides some information about an international norm, but I think we can all agree on the fact that the provision itself gives only half of the norm, or parts of the norm. We need to know more in order to reconstruct the complete norm. Uh, other elements of the norm obviously are provided elsewhere. And most obviously, there are some elements in Article 109, Paragraph 3, that we also have to know things about. There are elements in Article 110, and we have to know a few things about Article 86, which defines the concept of the high seas, and Article 109, paragraph 2, which defines the concept of unauthorized broadcasting. So all of a sudden, reconstructing the complete norm is, is not really an easy task. You can't just point to a particular provision in a treaty and say, here's a norm. You have to go beyond that. Uh, some people might react to this understanding of the concept of norm, but I think this example proves my point. If we can agree that Article 109, Paragraph 4, doesn't provide a complete norm, we have also uh, implicitly agreed that a norm is an abstract entity, because without this abstract entity, we wouldn't be able to say that this provision doesn't give the full norm. We are assuming something about the norm which takes us beyond the particular paragraph. The concept of a legal norm raises two fundamental questions of legal theory and those two questions are interrelated and that's what's so fascinating about them. Uh, first, there's the question concerning the individuation of norms, which are the criteria that allow lawyers to conceive of international norms as separate from other norms of the international legal system. How can we separate one use Kogan's norm from other use Kogan's norms or from norms of ordinary international law? Secondly, there's the question concerning the construction of the international legal system. How do individual norms relate to other individual norms and how do they interact with other possible elements of the international legal system? As I said, the questions are interrelated, meaning that 
Um, if you answer the one question in a particular way, you're also answering the second question in a particular way. Uh, and what is underlying your position with respect to both questions will be your concept of law. Hmm? If you have a particular concept of law in mind, you will have a particular idea of the individuation of norms, as you will have a particular idea of how to reconstruct the international legal system. And, of course, this whole analysis takes us to the classic um, division of lawyers into legal positivists and legal idealists. Um, if you, if you make a survey of the international legal literature there is on the concept of use Kogans, um, you do recognize a pattern. Uh, most of those who engage in the literature are either such as to classify as legal positivists or legal idealists. Um, sometimes we talk about the third school of law, which is the legal realism but you don't see a lot of legal realism in the literature about use Kogans, um, for obvious reasons, I think, because they are obsessed with practice of law. Uh, now, what I will try to do is to rationally re reconstruct the way lawyers individuate use Kogans norms, depending on whether they belong to the one or the other camp, depending on whether they are legal positivists or legal idealists. <coughs> this is, of course, I admit already now, so that you won't, might not criticize me for it, this is, of course, an oversimplification of reality because lawyers are not just positivists or idealists. There are, there are many versions of the two schools of thought. But I think simplification in this case is justified for the purpose that I have with my presentation. Uh, what I aim to do is to explain the divide between lawyers' different understanding of the legal consequences of use Kogans. And if you remember this objective, I think dividing lawyers into either positivists or idealists will help to uh, throw the divide into sharper relief. So that's my thinking. And that's why I'm oversimplifying. I admit that this is what I'm doing. Now, what about legal positivism? You know already something about legal positivism. You know that legal positivism ties the existence of legal norms to their source of origin. The pedigree of norms is terribly important for a positivist. If a norm exists, uh, it is because its authority can be traced back to other international norms and ultimately to a source of law recognized by the basic criteria of the international legal system. Uh, part, and part, of, part and parcel of this understanding is a theory of the concept of the international legal system. For legal positivism, <laughs> legal norms are organized along chains of authority according to the way they confer authority on each other. There is nothing outside of these chains of authority that the legal positivist would um, refer to as part of, of the legal system. So the relationship between norms cannot be any other thing than the relationship as norms 
in a logical sense. And that is to say that for legal positivism, international law is structured according to principles of deontic logic. Individual norms relate to other individual norms as separate units in a logical system. Hence, we are talking about the criteria of individuation, the criteria that for legal positivism enables uh, them to separate norms from one another are those that help to understand them as precisely such units, as units in a logical system. I will give you a few examples of this, of course, not to make it too abstract. Legal idealism. Legal idealism is distinguished from legal positivist by its uh, totally different attitude towards the relationship between law and social order. For legal positivism, law is a form of social order valuable in its own right. So there's no need for any justification beyond the fact that law is good for ordering society. Legal idealist sees things in a different way. Uh, legal idealists uh, tend to think of law as justified by something that lies beyond law itself. Um, there is always, for legal idealists, some or other idea, either what the law should be like or what the legal project should achieve. A legal idealist sets an ideal for the legal project. And examples are justice or legality, or once again the accommodation of the common basic needs of human beings. Please remember that I'm just giving a few examples. There are many versions of legal idealism. So when a legal idealist classifies a norm as Juskogans, this is because they believe that this ideal cannot be realized without attaching to the norm certain secondary obligations, no competences and no obligations. In the same vein, individual use Kogan's norms relate to other individual use Kogan's, <laughs> other individual norms, sorry, as means for the realization of an assumed legal ideal. Hence the criteria that enable individuation uh, are those that um, help to understand norms as precisely such means. I talked in the beginning of, of efficacy, sorry, and that's, that's, that's very central for the legal, legal idealist position, the fixity of norms, what they help to achieve. Now, I promised you an example. Uh, the example I will use is the right of self-determination of peoples, which is an often used example of a Juskogans norm. The International Law Commission has referred to it as Juskogans and other bodies have done the same. Uh, the right of self-determination is set forth by the Friendly Relations Declaration of 1970, and that is the text that I'm now using for my example. I'm using three paragraphs, although obviously there are more paragraphs, but let's make it simple. I'm, I'm displaying three, three paragraphs from from the declaration, and I'm asking the question, how would legal positivists describe these paragraphs? Well, if you think about what I already said about legal positivism, 
you will understand that they will see a series of different norms here, regulative norms with distinctly different functions. Mm. Symptomatically, these norms imply duties for different legal subjects. So paragraph 1 imposes a duty on those members of the UN which have assumed responsibilities for the administration of territories and whose peoples have not yet attained a full measure of self-government. This is a reference, implied reference to the UN Charter. Paragraph 2 imposes a duty on all member states of the UN and paragraph 5 imposes a duty on all states without making any distinction between members and non-members of the UN. So the right of self-determination for legal positivists can be described as a series of different norms with different functions imposing duties on different legal subjects. Legal idealists would describe the three paragraphs differently. For them, the use cognitive status of the right of self-determination is a means for the realization of an ideal. Let's make it simple and once again talk about uh, the right of self-determination as a means for the accommodation of the common basic needs of human beings. Uh, to justify their view, legal idealists would refer to the legal consequences of having a norm um, or giving to a norm the status of use cogens. So once again, the secondary use cogens obligations, no competences and no obligations come into focus. <coughs> uh, these prevent derogations from the right of self-determination. They preclude modification of the right unless accomplished by the creation of new use cogens norms and possibly they do other things as well but let's once again make it simple. Uh, crucially however what helps to ensure realization of the assumed legal ideal is not the absence of derogations and modifications. This is important to remember. If the use cogens status of the right of self-determination is a means for the accommodation of the common basic needs of human beings, and this is for a more practical reason. When you give the status to the right, when you give the right of self-determination a use cognitive status, this helps to eradicate external interference with its exercise. So a very practical result, the non-modification or the non-derogation are just means for the realization of this practical result. This observation provides the criteria of individuation that legal idealists apply as they would understand the friendly relations declaration all duties set forth in these three paragraphs serve in the exact same way as means for the accommodation of the common basic needs of human beings. They help to eradicate external interference with the exercise of the right of self-determination. And this is why for legal idealists these paragraphs provide elements of one single norm. So not several norms, but just one norm serving one particular purpose. This analysis will help to answer my principal question. Why, why is it that some international lawyers find it peculiar 
that the use Kogan status of norms should have a bearing on the enforcement of primary use Kogan's obligations, whereas other lawyers obviously do not. Once again, I will try to simplify analysis by giving you another example. And the example I take is an ICJ case. It's the famous jurisdictional immunities of the state case. It's a case I used in several um, contexts of writing about use Kogan's. Uh, I think m most of you are, are fairly familiar with the case. Yeah? It concerns the jurisdictional immunity of states, and it concerns to some extent also the concept of use Kogan's because of the way in which Italy argued. Uh, Italy had allowed tort claims to be brought against Germany in Italian courts. These claims originated in violations of IHL committed by German armed forces, German armed forces during their occupation of Italy at the end of the World War II. Uh, these violations involved the commission of war crimes. As Italy admitted, Germany would normally be immune against the exercise of jurisdictional immunity in Italian courts. In this case, however, it had no immunity since breaches of Jus Kogan's rules were involved and since Jus Kogan's rules prevail over rules of ordinary international law. That was the argument that the Council of Italy brought before the court. <clears throat> the court noted that the argument of Italy assumed the existence of a conflict of norms. It assumed a conflict between the rule of state immunity and the rules of IHL, including the prohibition of war crimes. As the court affirmed, no such conflict existed. Now, Italy had forestalled this pronouncement. Uh, in its counter-memorial, it had suggested that focus should be less on the violations of IHL and more on the duty of Germany to redress these violations. As Italy insisted, Germany had not only a use Kogan's duty to abstain from the perpetration of war crimes, it had also a use Kogan's duty to make reparations for any such crimes when they were committed. And Italy had a corresponding use Kogan's duty not to absolve Germany of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. It's a very skillfully drafted argument, I think, and a very interesting one. But the argument didn't convince the court. <clears throat> As it pronounced, it is difficult to say that the international law contains a rule requiring the payment of full compensation to each and every individual victim as a rule accepted by the international community of states as a whole as one from which no derogation is permitted. Whatever we think about the rule that Italy is trying to bring um, to the proceedings, this rule doesn't have the status of use codes. This is what the court is saying. And I would like to think that this position of the court is a typical position of a legal positivist, and this is perhaps not surprising. The legal positivist position is the position that the court is expected to take by international lawyers in general. For legal positivists, for legal positivism, the criteria that enable lawyers to separate norms from one another are those that help to understand them as separate units in a logical system. Let's assume that there is a general duty of states not to absolve other states of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. For legal positivists, 
this duty will still not have much to do with the Juskogen's duty of Germany not to perpetrate war crimes. Because they are two separate duties concerned with two entirely separate categories of conduct. They have no logical connection. And this is why legal positivists will not regard these duties as elements of one single norm. They are two norms, having two separate functions. Of course, the duty of Italy not to absolve Germany of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes may result from another use Kogan's norm, but that's a separate issue. Uh, and that's an issue that the court really didn't look into any further. My point is that just because states have a use Kogan's obligation not to perpetrate war crimes, they will not automatically, if you take the legal positivist position, have also used Kogan's duty not to absolve other states of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. Now, many lawyers, this, you may have seen that this case brought a lot of discussion in the literature. And this is because many lawyers interested in the concept of use Kogan's take the legal idealist position, I believe. Like the Council of Italy, uh, they would conceive of the situation differently. For these lawyers, the situation involves two norms, uh, both concerning the enforcement of international obligations. So according to the one norm, Italy has an obligation not to exercise jurisdiction over any tort claims brought against Germany in Italian courts. According to the other norm, Italy has a use Kogan's duty not to absolve Germany of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. <coughs> This is precisely the position that legal idealists would take as they believe we cannot separate the one duty from the other duty. We cannot separate the duty of Germany not to perpetrate war crimes from the duty of Italy not to absolve Germany of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. If the duty of Germany not to perpetrate war crimes is used Kogan's, so is the other obligation because they are all one. Hmm? We're not talking about several norms here. We're talking about one single norm. I'm approaching the end of my analysis. Uh, and I'm once again giving you the list of suggested examples of legal consequences that I've come with. Uh, with my analysis and my two examples in fresh memory... I think we can have another look at this list and maybe start seeing things in a different way. Uh, the second category on my list, the, the uh, fourth, fifth and sixth example, uh, are concerned with the enforcement of primary use Kogan's obligations. Uh, this category is similar to the alleged duty of Italy not to absolve Germany of any liability incurred in respect of war crimes. Unlike the first category, this category does not address the same conduct as the primary use Kogan's obligations. In the case of the first example, or the fourth, rather, the first example of the second category, Torture is an entirely different matter than the extradition of alleged perpetrators of torture. We're talking about two separate conducts, categories of conduct. And that's why legal positivists will refuse to accept 
that the legal consequences of Yuskogans may be anything like those of the second category. No obligations concerning the enforcement of the primary Yuskogans obligation can derive from the same norm as the primary Yuskogans obligation itself. Legal, idealists, legal idealism sees things differently. For them, no functional distinction can be made between the primary use cognizance obligations and the secondary use cognizance obligations, no competences and no obligations. If there is an obligation of a state to extradite alleged perpetrators of torture, this obligation has the same function as the prohibition of torture itself, namely the eradication of torture. So there's this very practical result, which is um, to some extent um, served by both obligations, or both sets of obligations. And this is why legal idealists would conceive of primary and secondary use cognizance obligations, no competences and no obligations, as derived in all cases from the same international law. If the provision of torture is use cognizance, then every norm uh, addressing the enforcement of the primary use cognizance obligation are part and parcel of the same norm so to say. So they are all one. Phrased in the context of the example of torture, once again, and uh, the suggested obligation of states to extradite and alleged perpetrators of torture, legal positivists would say that, the two, that, that two norms are involved. The one norm imposes an obligation to abstain from the perpetration of torture, the other norm imposes an obligation to extradite alleged perpetrators of torture. So functionally, they are distinct. For legal idealists, there is only one norm, doing all the same thing at the same time. And this is why you have this huge difference. Uh, that's basically all I intend to cover. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much.